You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. (laughs) All right, good morning, Real Life. How's it going? We are ready to get rolling here, but before we jump into the sermon, I wanted to tell you about a few things that are shaken down. Um, You saw the video of Paul going to Missoula, and um, this is a big deal um, from, you know, Paul being wounded and hurt and being able to find healing and restoration in in our church. He's been the youth pastor at the Moscow campus for the last few years, and we're excited for this opportunity for him. Um, This will be, um, our church this October will celebrate 10 years as a church. And that's a big deal. We have a big celebration service planned, and you guys will all be part of that, and we'll keep you posted as we get closer to the day but, uh, of what all is happening. But um, I want to make you aware of something else that I think is particularly significant. In, in the 10 years that we've been a church, this church in Missoula will be the 20th church that we've helped plant. And that's a big deal. Because I believe that if the church is ever going to gain relevance in the culture again, it's not going to, become, not going to come through transitioning existing churches. It's going to be because new churches came in and rethought the way that church could be done and how we communi- could communicate the love of God to other people. And that's a huge step. And, and so we're a big part of that. Paul is going there, but this is how this affects you guys. You're like, big deal. I don't even know him. Never seen him before. He's one of those people. Uh, I want to make you aware of something else that's going on that will help this land a little closer to home for you guys. So, Logan, come on up here. Logan has been our worship and youth person for this campus, and on uh, October the 8th will be his last Sunday with us. He will be going with Paul as well to help plant that church, and they are a really good team together, and that's going to be... He, <laughs> he needs... Yeah... <laughs> He needs you. Um, you complete me. You have me at hello. Um, so, uh, yeah, so Logan is going to head out with him, and that's exciting. Um, we love that. This is actually a win for us. It's sad, and it's a loss, and it makes me think of, uh, I was telling our, our team earlier this morning, our setup crew, the, in Acts 21 and 22, Paul's conversation with the Ephesian elders. It's the last time he's ever going to see him. And he has this big, you know, all I want to do is finish the race. That's all I want to do. And then he says, it says that after tearing themselves away from one another, he got on the boat and set sail for Jerusalem. Like that's how this whole ministry thing works. We, God, his mission is bigger than us. And we were excited and sad at the same time. And it's a hard thing, but it's a win for us. And so we celebrate this. Uh, I'm honored to be a part of Paul and Logan's faithfulness in taking this next step in their journey. So uh, Logan will be doing that. He has been worshiping youth here. And um, in an attempt to fill his shoes, one of the things, one of the people that we've hired is a new youth pastor that I wanted to introduce you to. So Adrian, come on up here. This is uh, Adrian Airhorn Guy Gonzalez, uh, more affectionately known as AD, and AD's been working with Young Life College Ministry, Campus Ministry for a long time and doing great things with them. Um, This is his first crack at vocational ministry, and so he's nervous and scared and has lots of years of youth ministry experience around him to help him know how to do it right. So you don't need to tell him what you think he should do. Um, What you need to do is love him and encourage him and tell him that you're in his corner and that he needs to charge the gates of hell and go pull kids away from it. Uh, And that's what he needs from you. I'll tell him when he's doing something wrong. I'm good at that. (laughs) Let me do my job. You do your job. You support him, love him. You be his champions and his cheerleaders, okay? So what I want to do this morning is uh, pray for these guys. This is part of, we've been talking for a while about the fact that there's changes coming, big changes, exciting changes coming for this campus. There are more that will be coming. 
um, and we'll keep you posted on those as we can appropriately unveil that. But uh, I'm excited about the future of the Pullman campus. Like God's got work to do in Pullman and we're going to be a part of it. So I want to pray and then we'll get our sermon started. Lord, um, thank you for the opportunity to be a part of this journey with Paul and Logan. And as they consider going off um, to follow your mission to reach the world for Jesus one person at a time, Lord, I pray that you would give them favor in their new community. Lord, I pray that you would give them um, wisdom and knowing how to deal with people, uh, patience and, and fortitude and all the obstacles that they're going to face. Lord, uh, thank you for this incredible privilege to be able to support um, and champion and cheerlead as they go forward. And I lift up Adrian to you as well as he steps into a new role that he's never done before, believing that you've called him to this. And so, Lord, we want to um, ask you for wisdom and favor for him as well. And, Lord, that you would give him the opportunity to connect with uh, students, junior high and high school students in ways that are transformational for their spiritual well-being. God, we give all this to you and we say thank you for letting us be a part of everything that you're doing on the Palouse and beyond. In your name, amen. Thanks, guys. All right. So we are in Revelation. Chapters 8 and 9 today is where we're covering, and we've been in this uh, vision of the throne room of God, and um, it feels a little bit like we're kicking a dead horse with this. It's hard because the themes just kind of keep coming back over and over and over again. And one of the things that we've been talking about with this book is that John isn't making this stuff up. He's pulling from already existing apocalyptic sources. He's pulling from biblical and extra-biblical writings to kind of flesh out these ideas and pictures that he's building on. And uh, this is stuff that's been around for a long time. This is from the Jewish perspective. But there's another perspective that I want to step back and look at, kind of at a 50,000-foot view today, and see if there isn't something that we can learn here from this. And chapters 8 and 9 is kind of a good spot to do this um, because we're finishing something that's actually really critical in the book of Revelation as part of the movement of the story. Um, John is also a brilliant user of culture. So he's a brilliant user of the text and the Jewish heritage, and so much so that many guys that have written about Revelation over the years have talked about how this is a Jewish book, almost too Jewish of a book. Um, it doesn't celebrate Jesus enough, which I think is hysterical, but that's another conversation. Um, and then on the other hand, John is a brilliant user of his culture. He's a brilliant guy at painting a picture with his culture. Okay, and I want to show you one of those pictures that is going on in this book, and, and it's going to have some connections to us. So we're going to read chapter 8, and then we're going to pull this apart a little bit. So let's read chapter 8. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. I don't know why. And then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne, which if, you don't know, if you're not familiar with the imagery here, read Exodus and Leviticus. You know, if you're having trouble falling asleep, read Exodus and Leviticus, um, riveting literature inspired every word. And there's a picture there of what's drawn on the tabernacle with the golden offer, uh, altar and the sacrifices that you offer there. And the smoke of the burning sacrifices is a picture of the prayers of God's people. So if you want to know what God uh, thinks your prayers smell like, think barbecue. You know that, like, oh my goodness. Like... It, Every time. I've never met anybody. Vegetarians smell barbecue and they're like, oh, that smells good. If I ate meat, that's how I would want to eat it. There's something like really good about that. That's how your prayers smell to God, which is cool. That's cool. Uh, and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. 
And then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. And this is important because it's going to be the final piece of the picture that we're going to put together today. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all the grass was burned up. So a third of the earth and a third of the trees and all the grass. We don't even like grass. <laughs> Never mind. Except for in Washington. But... Uh, the second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. And the third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on the third of the rivers and on the springs of water. And the name of the star was Wormwood. And the third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. And the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, 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 um, to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Now, so many things I want to say about this, and there's so much misinformation about the book of Revelation, in part because people have tried to connect dots that are unfairly connected with other pieces of literature, both biblical and non-biblical, and there's just so many things, and, and this, like this section of scripture was made into a movie in the 70s called A Thief in the Night or something like that, and it was used to scare church camp kids really bad, like I rededicated my life every time they played it, and because um, I was like, ah, the fire, look at the, I don't want to be there when the meteor showers and all that stuff, and so here's the thing. This is not, John is not making this stuff up. He's not trying to paint a picture of what's going to happen. He's pulling off of already existing metaphors. Does that make sense? This is really important for us to get. He's not building something new. These already have meaning. So we need to go back and plug it into that meaning. Now, that is actually a really boring sermon. So I want to talk to you about something that I think is kind of cool. Uh, the Greco-Roman world was obsessed with sport. Now, they call it Greco-Roman. This is interesting because the, the Greeks kind of came in 300s BC. Rome went all the way up to like 4, 5, 600 AD. So why is this called the Greco-Roman? The Greeks and the Romans, there's two separate people. Why is it called Greco-Roman? Well, here's why. It's because when Rome came to power, they looked at Greece and said, yep, that's how we're going to do it. They really didn't come up with anything new. So the worldview of the Romans was really a Greek worldview. So it became known as the Greco-Roman worldview. Does that make sense? They did really innovative things. Like they took the Greek god Asclepius and they changed his name to Asclepius. It's different. It's like, uh, remember the song Ice Ice Baby, Vanilla Ice, and it got into this big controversy because the bass line was the same as the song Under Pressure by Queen, right? And I was watching this interview with him one time, and he's like, their song goes, dun, 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 dun. Our song goes, dun, 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 dun. It's different. No, it isn't. No, in fact, Queen and Vanilla Ice are exactly the same, with, exe with the small exception that Queen had talent and could sing and write music and actually play instruments. Other than that, they're exactly the same. Um, so <laughs> that's kind of what, what Rome did with Greece. Rome was like, oh, we're going to change it. Only, we're just, only way we're going to change it is we're going to put a different emphasis on a different syllable. That's kind of all they did. That's, that's really all they did. 
Um, and so it's known as kind of the Greco-Roman worldview. Now, in Greece, the Olympics started like way back in Greek history, and it was, it was one of those things that became a very important part of the Greek world because this is one of the ways that Alexander the Great controlled the world was by bringing in athletics and competition, okay? And the Greek games were uh, actually really interesting. They, um, and by the way, if you want a further reading of this, um, two guys that I would recommend that you read, two authors, one is by the name of Ethelbert Stoffer, a name that I would give you to consider if you're with child, Ethelbert. Um, and then another guy is a guy by the name of Roland Worth. And so Ethelbert and Roland Apparently, you have to have a really bizarre name to be able to write about Revelation. So, um, these two guys really unfold this idea of the Olympics as it's tied to Revelation, and you'll understand this in a minute. Um, so, the, the Greek games, you, you came to the games from all over the world to compete at whatever location it was at. And you came during the opening ceremonies, everybody lined up. It's like, this ought to sound really foreign to you. During the opening ceremonies of the Olympic Games, everybody lined up according to the groups and they, they walked under a flag, right? Like you've never heard of anything like this before. They walked out under a flag. Now for you and I, as we look at the modern Olympic Games, they walk out under a flag of what? Their country. Right? We represent our country. This is the thing that matters to us. Here's the key difference. In the ancient world, the Olympic Games, you walked out under the flag of your God. And this is really, really significant because it's not necessarily that you came from a country or a location. However, that's typically the case because gods in this time period were located. They weren't omnipresent. They weren't everywhere like we think of God. They were located. And so if you valued... Um, if your area valued truth and Athena was your goddess, you came out under the flag of Athena. So places, different regions had gods, and so places that were agricultural had more agricultural gods like Hathor and uh, different gods like this, different fertility gods were, were important. Um, and then in your shepherding more uh, ranching, those kinds of places where you had large flocks and herds. You had more gods like the shepherding gods, like, um, like Pan or somebody like that. And so um, Pan was half goat, half man, like, like Mr. Tumnus um, from Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe. And so uh, these are, depending on where you're from, you have a certain kind of God, and you come to compete in the games under the flag of your God. Now, not only that, but every person who has a job is part of a guild, and the guild is this kind of group of people who all do the same thing. So you have a blacksmithing guild, and you have a, you have a plumbing guild, and even in the first century, you have a plumbing guild, and um, you have all these different jobs, the seamstress guild and the winemaking guild. Each guild has its own God. And so to, in order to kind of put your mind around what is a guild, if you think union, like a, like a worker's union, that's, that's okay. That gets us there, but it's more like a fraternity. Because what they would do is they would get together and they would party in honor of the God of their guild. So what you wanted to do was pick an occupation that had a really cool guild party. And so as I show up with it, it makes sense, right? You don't want one that's like, so we're going to sit around and knit, and that's how we're going to celebrate our God the, of the knitting guild. No, like I want a God that's like, we're going to have steaks, and we're going to dance, and we're going to listen to loud music, and we're going to watch football. <laughs> right? Because... Totally unlike the ancient world, we're not obsessed with sport. I mean, wait, maybe there's going to be some application points here. So you come into the opening ceremonies underneath the flag of your God. And it's important because what you, as you compete, if you win, you win because of the power of your God at work in you. This is not about your own athletic ability. It's about 
the power of your God giving you the ability to win. And that matters because that's John's perspective in connecting Revelation to the Olympics. It's not about the power that they have. It's about the power of their God at work in them. Okay? You with me? Now, there are seven pieces to the opening ceremonies of the ancient Olympic Games. And I want to show these to you, and then we'll see if maybe John isn't painting a picture of some kind. Okay? Number one, there's the presentation of the emperor. By the way, this is the stadium in a town called Aphrodisias, which is in Asia Minor or modern-day Turkey. Come with me in June. I will take you there. You can take this exact photograph if you would like. Uh, the presentation of the emperor. So the emperor walks out from underneath this arched um, tunnel, and he comes out and everyone stands and cheers, right? Look at me, I'm the emperor. Oh, these games are done in my honor. I don't know if you know this, but I'm kind of a big deal. This is kind of the presentation of the emperor, and he comes out and everybody oogles and ogles, and there are stories in history where the first person who quits applauding gets killed. And eventually, people are like, you know what, I'm taking one for the team. Like, I am done. I want a hot dog. Uh, let's do this. All right, next. So that's step one. And step two is the Herald's announcements. Now, I don't know if you can see this very well, but right here, off the end of my hand, there's a section of bleachers that's different than the other bleachers. Can you see that? It's longer, and, and it's only, it's just a part of the row. It's not the whole row. But it actually goes back further, and it's difficult to see in this picture, than the rest of the bleachers. Can you see that? It's different. This is the most honored seat in the entire stadium. It's at the 50-yard line. And it's the seat where the most important person at the game sits. Now, if the emperor sits there, then the emperor's, the, if the emperor's at the games, he's the most important one and he sits there. If he's not there, then you have like a mayor or a consul or somebody that's an important government official that would be able to sit there. But if the emperor's there, the emperor's there. Now, the one key difference that I need to make, a, to make you aware of about the Roman games and the Greek games is that the Greek games were all about the gods and only the gods. The Roman games were about the gods, but they were also about the emperor and his deity and his imperialness. And that's really important because the games for the Romans became an opportunity to celebrate the emperor. And that is really critical because it peaks at the time of, Rome, of Domitian which happens to be the same period of time when the book of Revelation is written. Coincidence? I think not. Okay, next. Then we have Caesar's pronouncements. We all get in our line and we walk out under the flag of our God. Probably to some sort of cheering, maybe a little mood music, maybe somebody singing a song up on a stage, like a halftime show, um, something about, I don't know, all the single ladies, I don't know, something, something, some kind of a processional big thing, and we walk out and we all present ourselves in front of this seat that's at the 50-yard line, which happens to be right over here. If you, if you know what you're looking at, you can actually see it on this side over here where Caesar would sit. And we all present ourselves in front of him, and Caesar would begin with Caesar's pronouncements. He would look at this group of people and say, I've seen your good deeds, I appreciate this about you, however, I have this against you. You guys are like, what? That sounds like revelation. I know. Maybe that's, maybe there's something there. Next. Then a chorus sings an imperial praise. After all, the processional has come. We don't want the emphasis to be on the athletes. We want the emphasis to be on Caesar. And so the chorus sings an imperial praise. Something like this. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. This is the song that Domitian's 24 elders and his chorus sang to him. true. Domitian made his wife call him Lord and God. To which all the wives are like, 
<laughs> and I tried it with my wife once. Um, actually, I should say, I thought about trying it with my wife one time. Hey, from now on, what I would like you to do is to call me Lord and God. If we could just do that. <laughs> if I actually said that to my wife, like I would wake up on the floor with my head, my hand on my head and a big knot underneath of it. That's how that would go. <laughs> you know, the wives are like, mm-hmm. Don't even think about it. Let me say this about Domitian. Domitian took emperor worship really to its pinnacle. He was so evil. Domitian was so evil that when he died, Rome struck his name from history. Not the Christians, not the church. Rome did. Rome, the evil, pagan, hedonistic empire, Domitian was so evil that anywhere where his name was written was it was crossed out. Anywhere where it was chiseled into a statue, it was chiseled out. Anywhere that his statue was actually erected, they tore the statue down. They eliminated him from history. That's how evil Domitian was, and that's the world that we're stepping into. So when we're talking about Caesar's, these, this chorus singing in imperial praise, let me tell you something. In this time period, it's a big deal. Because if they don't sing it imperially enough, they're dead. Domitian wouldn't hesitate to bring in a daily new chorus if it meant that he would get praised better. Last piece, the games are opened. And the games are always opened. Actually, there's one more piece after this, but we'll get there in a sec. The games are always opened with the same event. It's a chariot race. And it's kind of, it's an event, but it kind of becomes a ceremonial event over time. And especially in the Roman world, it's a ceremonial event where they always, and this is apparently historically verifiable, there are always four chariots, and the four horses that pull the chariots always are the same color, white, red, black, and pale, or spotted. Come on. That's cool. Last piece after the chariot races are done is there are trumpets that are blown. And that is where we land in the book of Revelation today. Now, I want to go back and show you what John's been doing in the book of Revelation. Check this out. Step one. Do you remember step one of the Olympic Games? It's the presentation of the emperor. Read the first half of Revelation chapter one. It's the presentation of the emperor. Step two, Herald's announcements. John hears a voice telling him to write down what he sees, and what he sees is all about the greatness of God. Step three, Caesar's pronouncements, the seven letters to the seven churches, which follow the exact same format. I have this against, or this, I've, seen, I've heard of this, but I have this against you. Follows the exact same format for all seven letters. Shut up. Like, this is cool. This is cool. Next one. Chorus sings in imperial praise. The crowd in Revelation, dressed in white robes, sings, led by the 24 elders, this song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Next. The games are opened. They're opened by what? Chariot races pulled by four horses of four colors. Oh, go back one slide. I forgot this piece. This is important. Games are opened. There's a scroll that's given to the emperor, and he reads the scroll as a way to inaugurate the games. Why does he get the scroll? Because he is the only one worthy to open it. An emperor is the only one worthy to start the games. So why is it such a big deal in Revelation 4 and 5 that there's no one worthy to open the scroll? Except for the slain lamb? Like this. Okay, next, chariot races. Next, trumpets. And that's Revelation 8. The trumpets sound and the games begin. Now, why 
does John use this idea to paint his picture in the book of Revelation? He does it for the same reason that any time that I want you to laugh, all I have to say is, you should, th- should have run the football. Because y'all know exactly what I'm talking about. Right? Because this culture had an obsession with sport. So what he does is he frames the epic struggle, this eternal struggle that they're in, in the form of a sporting event. Why? Because they're going to get it. And what he's going to say to them is this. You are in the stadium and the games have been unveiled. How are you going to compete? This kind of language is all over the New Testament, by the way. It's nothing new. This idea that we're competing in the arena, in the stadium, that you and I are in this epic struggle on the floor of the arena, and how we choose to compete tells the story of who our God is. Because I'm not here competing for my own glory, I'm here competing under the power of the God that I represent. That's their frame of reference. Let me show you some passages out of the Bible that talk about this idea. Paul says this, do you not know that in a race, all the runners run? This is stadium language. All the runners run in a stadium. Totally different than the world we live in. But only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Don't run like, I don't know, I'll get there. Like if you went into an actual race and ran like that, or if you're like, I'm just going to run backwards. I'm going to run like karaoke. You would get booed out of the arena. Why? Because you're not taking your competition seriously. I wonder how many of us are karaokeing through our Christian life. Or are we running in such a way as to get the prize? Do we dance? Do we play? Do we flitter as we run around the arena? Or do we run? Let's look at another one. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but, they do, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. That's absolutely, that's absolutely lang- the, the running stadium language. Let's look at the next one. 2 Timothy, this is Paul at the end of his ministry. This is the last letter that he ever wrote, by the way, before he was beheaded. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering, and the time for my departure is near. I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have longed for his appearing. By the way, in the ancient Olympics, you didn't get gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal. If you won, you got a crown. If you took second, you were first loser. That's it. You're like, sucks to be second, doesn't it? Like, that's their frame of reference. You want to know who brought in the idea of the gold medal, silver medal, and the bronze medal? Interesting little side note for you. Herod the Great, who was king of Israel, who happened to compete in the Olympics in the javelin. All right. Next one. And apparently he didn't win. So he's like, well, we all need to get something, right? There's three of us. Let's create three medals. We'll call them participation trophies. It'll work. We'll all feel really good. Because that's Herod. (laughs) Feel really good about ourselves. And then I'll kill you. Therefore, 
Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, the, the, the word for crowd or cloud here in the Greek is a bigger word that's always used to describe massive crowds. So you have a crowd and then you have big crowds and then really, really massive crowds are called a cloud. There's so many of them, it's a cloud of witnesses, okay? So well, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. Now, this is race language. And the whole idea of this Hebrews 12 passage is kind of bolstered by Hebrews 11, which is a whole bunch of examples of people who finished well. They ran their race well, and it's got Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Enoch and Barak and Samson. Who, what in the world is Samson doing there? I don't know, but he's in the hall of faith and I'm not. So, who am I? You know, then, and then it's like, and then there's all these other people that were sawed in two and they were beheaded and they were thrown in jail and tortured and the world was not worthy of them. And they ran their race too. And all of those people are sitting in the stadium looking at you, screaming, run! Run! Don't, don't piddle! Don't flit! Don't dance! Run! So I got to tell you a funny story. Uh, I, there was a point in my life where I was running a lot and um, I needed a goal. And so I decided that my goal would be to run a race. I wanted to train for a race. Now, you're going to get a little bit of an insight into my personality right now. Here's what I know. Right now, today, if all of us were to walk out of this room and go uh, do a 5K, it's three and a half miles, every single one of us could finish it. Now, we may not finish it pretty. We may not finish it at record speed, but we could finish it. We could walk, run, get, we would get there, right? We would finish a 5K. So a 5K, I was like, I, don't, I need a goal. I don't need a 5K goal. I don't need that. So here's my personality. I was like, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to run a marathon. You know why I ran a marathon? Because all of you guys, and either you said it out loud or you thought it in your head, you don't look like the kind of a guy that would run a marathon. I look like the pillow that you snuggle with after you run a marathon. That's, I'm built for comfort, not for distance. That's me, right? So, and I'm okay with that, but don't tell me I can't. And don't tell me like half marathon. That would have made a lot more sense. And that's 13.1 miles. That's a noble undertaking, right? But it's half of something. Don't ever tell me that I'm going to run half of something because that's only half. Right? Don't call it a half marathon. Call it a pretty stinking good distance. Like 31, 13.1 miles, I'd have been okay with it. No, a marathon is 26.2 miles. Now, here's what I know about running a marathon. If you're going to run a marathon, you can't just show up and run a marathon. Right? You've got to train. And you've got to run certain kind of miles each week, certain numbers in a certain progression, and you have to get those miles in. If you don't, then your body doesn't develop correctly. But not only that, you've got to rest properly. But not only that, you have to eat properly, which is the hardest part for me, to be quite honest. I could do the exercise, and I'm really good at sleeping. Like, I'm one of the best ever at sleeping. Nuclear holocaust could happen if it happened during nap time. I would not know until I woke up. But the Bible says that a clear conscience is a soft pillow. I'm just saying. So if you can't sleep well, <laughs> repent. <laughs> so, but the eating part was hard. Like the nutrition, you've got to train, you've got to eat right. You can't just eat whatever you want. You've got to eat the right combinations of macros, the right combinations of micros. And if you know what I'm talking about, good on you. Um, but you, I mean, it's all, it's important. Now, here's the other thing you need to understand about running a marathon. The human body only stores about 2,000 calories readily available to use for in energy. 
you, no matter what you weigh, how big you are, the human body only stores about 2,000 calories for you to access for readily available in, energy. After you burn those 2,000 calories, if you still continue your exercise, the body immediately begins to digest its own muscle in order to provide energy for you to complete the task. Okay? Another piece of math is this. The average-sized runner burns about 100 calories a mile. Now, here's the math. You have 2,000 readily available calories. You're going to burn about 100 calories a mile. That means about 20 miles in, you're going to have burned all of your available energy. I am bigger than the average marathoner. Most marathoners don't look like this. And so I, they, they call this, when you, when you burn all of your available calories, they call this hitting the wall. Um, this is where you watch people just really labor, and it's why they start taking those shot packs, their honey packs, to get more energy, calories into your system. So you get like honey or something, some kind of a gel that'll put more energy into your system. I hit the wall between 17 and a half and 18 miles every time. I've run two marathons, and because the second one I was just dumb. Um, I knew what I was in for and did it anyway. Uh, so, so that... That's important because when you hit the wall, there's nothing, there's, there's no way to describe hitting the wall. You have to do it. You have to experience it to understand it. Like, to understand what it feels like to just feel dead inside. Now, the other thing that you need to know about my first marathon is because I was young and stupid and this was my first race ever, I overtrained. And so I developed tendonitis in my knee, in my right knee which is really painful because the IT band, that's, one's, that's the outside muscle outside your leg, pulls, attaches to a tendon down here and attaches to a tendon up on your hip. Well, it gets really tight, and it's really hard muscle to stretch out. And uh, so it, it tightens, and as it tightens and you begin to compensate, you make all these other muscles tighten up, and that puts pressure on your sciatic nerve. So when you get really bad tendonitis, when you step, it actually shoots pain up into your back. Let me tell you how I know this. Um, comes to race day, in my first marathon, it comes to race day, and I load up on ibuprofen, which is dumb. And, and I start running, and I feel pretty good, and I'll never forget the step and where I was at and what I was looking at. I was coming around a corner in the street, and I stepped. It was 12 and a half miles into the race. And I stepped, and pain shot all the way up my leg into my back. And I was like, uh, I mean, it almost buckled me. It was really bad. And, and so I was uh, kind of stopped and, what am I going to do? And, it, and, and like, my first thought was, you know, I'm really thankful that that waited 12 and a half miles into the race to hit. My second thought was, I'm not even halfway done. <laughs> like, I still have 13 and a half miles to go. So I was like, okay, I, I have to finish this race. I have to. So I start, for 13 and a half miles, two things kept me going, two things. Number one, every story that I could think of that was about people who had done difficult physical things and had survived it. People that had climbed Mount Everest. Crazy people that were stranded out in the sea and survived. People that were in wrestling matches and got their teeth knocked out or dislocated their shoulder and they was all taped up, but they finished the match, you know? Like all these crazy, every, and I would retell those stories, retell those stories, retell those stories in my head. Why? Because I needed to know that people could endure painful experience and come out okay. Second thing that kept me going was the reality of who I would let down if I quit. That I, listen, there's no shame in running 13 miles and being saying, I'm done. Especially not if you're injured and nobody would have ever blamed me for it. Except that I would have had to explain to my wife why we had to spend almost $1,000 for me to drop out of a race. Right? I would rather crawl 13 miles and explain to my wife why I quit and race. Like, 
you have to understand this. You are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, and some of them have gone before you and endured tremendous pain in the race that you're running, and they endured, and they did it, and they finished it. And it isn't just that they're in heaven, because the amazing piece of their story it isn't that God was able to take a train wreck and save them. God can do that. It was how they chose to run. But you're also surrounded by people that if you don't run well, the story that you're telling to them is that your race doesn't matter. And so what John is inviting these people into in the book of Revelation isn't just, hey, it's a competition, it's a support, it's a sport, hang in there. You, he's not just inviting them to that, he's inviting them into this truth. How you run matters. So don't just dilly-dally. Run. And you got a whole group of people that are sitting in the stadium cheering for you going, yes, it's hard. And yes, you want to quit and you want to be done. And oh, yes, it gets so hard sometimes. Yes, but you can do it. Run. We understand, but run. Don't. Quit. Too much is at stake. And with that in mind, we're going to move towards the Lord's table. And so if you're new with us, we have an open table at our church. And what that means is anybody who's willing to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with us is invited to partake. But we want you to hold those elements till the end. And we'll take them all together. And while they're passing that out, I want to work through some implications, okay? So implication number one, we have to trust that God finishes what he starts. Do we believe, by the way, this verse in Ephesians chapter one, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it, was written to the same people that this letter in Revelation was written to. If you'll remember, Ephesus is one of the seven churches. So the same God, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that invites them through John to run the race well, invites them through Paul to never forget that God will finish what he starts. Don't ever quit. Thank you. Next implication. The great cloud of witnesses bears testimony to this truth. They're all there saying, we did it. And listen, we need, we need people to remind us that we can finish. I tell you a funny story. So I, my first marathon, it's coming around the home stretch. It's about, I don't know, maybe three quarters of half a mile left. And I see in front of me, this old guy that I would later learn is 84. He was 84 years old. Um, and I come around the corner and I'm like, I will not get beat by an 84-year-old man. And so I catch up and I mean, I am. And I run up to him and he looks back and he speeds up. And then I speed up, and then he speeds up. And then I, and pretty soon, with about 200 yards left, we are on a dead sprint. Now, that's a relative term after you've run 26 miles. But we are running with everything left in us, and the finish line is right there. And I am like, I will not get beat by an 84-year-old man. And I beat him. And I finished number 4,783 out of 12,000. Not bad. That was incredibly mediocre. They gave me a participation medal and everything. It was great. It was great. We came across the line and this guy came up and gave me a hug and he said, thank you for pushing me. And I was like, dude, I just beat you. Like, I just... 
I just owned you. Now, like the people who won the marathon could have already run it three times in the amount of time that it took us. What I, did, what I did learn is this guy, 84 years old, ran a marathon every month. So I suck, <laughs> and he rules. That's kind of the lesson that I learned there. But we need, I need an 84-year-old man that can tell me, you can do this. You can do this. We need people to bear testimony of the fact that God will finish what he starts in us, which is why we do small groups. Like, if you're not in a small group, you need to get in one. That's why we do small groups. Next one. The way you run your race is far more meaningful to others than you realize. It's not just about some glad morning when this life is or God can figure out how to get me out of here. How we run today matters because that's the story that people are going to tell of your life, not the fact that you got saved. The story that people will tell about your God is about how you run. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Last implication. Starting the race is great, but it means nothing if it isn't finished. So I would just invite you to consider if you've haven't, if you've been running and you're tired, you're like, I'm just about ready to quit. You need to find somebody that's about twice your age and sit down with them and go, how do you, how do you finish? How do you finish? How did you endure this well? Because sometimes it's really hard. I love taking communion every week because it's a reminder to us that Jesus says you can. You can do it. You can. You've got everything that you need because it's not about your power to run the race. It's about the power of the God that you represent. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup and he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. And Lord, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for the strength that you give us to endure. Thank you for this idea of running the race well, not just trotting, but running to get the prize. And Lord, give us the courage to endure when we're tired and pull, put people around us that can pull us along when we want to give up. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter and visit our website, liferotp.com.